Well, welcome to Grace Bible Church. It's wonderful to have you with us this Easter morning. Today, we're beginning a new series here at Grace. We're going to study for the next seven weeks the seven I Am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. Seven times Jesus says, I am blank, and he fills in that blank with something extraordinary. And it it reveals to us who Jesus is and why he is worthy of our faith. And this morning we're going to start with the I am statement that's the best fit for Easter. John chapter 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So you can turn there, John chapter 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. It's a chapter that many of you are probably familiar with. It's a story you may have heard since you were a little kid. It's about Lazarus. Jesus's friend Lazarus dies, and then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It's a beautiful story that has both good news and bad news for us. So which do you want first? You want the good news or the bad news first? Well, I'm going to give you the bad news first because statistically 78% of people Choose the bad news first. You want to get the bad stuff over with so you can get on to the good news. So let's do that. Bad news. What is the bad news for us from John chapter 11? It's kind of a bummer. You're going to die. That's John 11. There's no way around that. You're going to die. That's where the story actually begins. Jesus' good friend Lazarus gets sick and then he dies and no one is surprised by that. In the story, people are really sad, but they're not surprised. Because they know that everyone eventually dies. There's no way to escape that. Everyone dies. That's a reality that has been happening as I've been speaking. Been talking for about one minute. In that time, 107 people have died on this planet per minute. That adds up to 153,000 per day, 56 million per year, 1.6 per second. Death is happening all around us all the time because all people die. And there's no way to escape that reality. The best that we can do is try to distract ourselves from that reality. That's what the world does. People don't want to think about death. I'm part of this online forum for people who drive and repair a particular kind of car that I happen to own. And so most of the forum posts are about like how to fix something that broke or where to find a part at the best price. But every once in a while it gets more personal. We talk about what we do for a living or our kids or our hobbies or what beer we like to drink, whatever it is, lots of stuff. But it's all lightweight. It's all pretty light stuff until this last week. A forum member died, cardiac arrest. He passed away. And so I watched online. I expressed my condolences and watched lots of members jump online and express their condolences to his family. But what was remarkable to me was to watch how quickly those people went from expressing condolences back to the threat about what your favorite beer is. It was like they could not move fast enough from the forum on death to the threat about beer. They wanted to get out of there as fast as they could because that's what we do. When we're faced with the reality of death, we try to change the subject as quickly as possible. So we run off to conversations about our jobs or our hobbies or sports or anything that can distract us from the reality of death. But that distraction doesn't change the reality at all. All of us are going to die and there's nothing we can do about that. That's the bad news of John 11. Here's the good news. If you know Jesus, 
death really isn't that bad. If you know Jesus, death isn't that bad. It's nothing actually that you need to be afraid of. Reminds me of my kids and shots. My kids are terrified of getting shots. And unfortunately, for whatever reason in medical practice, you always get your shots around your birthday. It's really weird to me. Kind of ruins the whole moment because my kids know it's coming. And so for like two weeks before they go to the doctor on their birthday, they are just terrified. They cry like every night because they know shots are coming. They're just so scared. And so what do Julie and I do? Well, we try to remind them that a shot is nothing more than a temporary discomfort that leads to a better life. Okay, so the shot It hurts for a minute, but then you don't get measles. You don't get tetanus, and that's a good trade. You want that trade. Well, that's what it is with death. That's what God wants you to understand about death, this thing that the world doesn't want to think about because it's so terrified. There's no reason for us to fear death because if you know Jesus, then death is nothing more than a temporary discomfort that leads you to a better life. There is no reason to fear death. That's what I want to prove to you this morning. By walking you through John chapter 11 and seeing who Jesus is and what he can do about the problem of death. So we're going to look at John 11. We're going to learn a lot about Jesus. The first thing that we're going to see about Jesus is that Jesus has plans for us that are bigger than death. Jesus has a plan for your life that transcends death, that goes beyond, that's bigger, that's greater than death. So let's see that. Look with me, John chapter 11, let's start in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now I want to pause for a moment and help you see that this story we're about to read has none of the hallmarks of a fairy tale. This isn't like that story you read on the internet about some guy's roommate's girlfriend's uncle's brother. No, this is not like that. No, you, you have a name, Lazarus. You have a family, the Lazarus who goes with Mary and Martha. You have a place, Bethany. Why does John give so much detail? Well, because when he wrote this book, Bethany was still there. You, you could go visit it. He's inviting his audience. Hey, go verify the facts. You can go talk to witnesses. You can go find out that this really happened. This isn't myth. It's not legend. It's history based on verifiable events. Okay, let's continue the story. Verse 3. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he who you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus had a special bond with this family in Bethany. They actually, they appear multiple times in the gospel accounts. They followed Jesus, they hosted him in their homes, they served him, and he loved this family dearly. But he shows his love in kind of an odd way in verse 6. Doesn't seem like love. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That sounds kind of weird. Okay, so you hear that one of your best friends in life is sick and, and about to die, and what you decide to do is let's just chill out for a couple more days. It's nice here, let's hang out. 
Sounds cold, but it's not. See, Jesus has a plan. He has a plan to bring out incredible good in Lazarus's life and Mary's life and Martha's life and our lives. He's, he's a man who has a plan that transcends death. And you see some of that plan in verse 14. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. The plan is ultimately about faith. Jesus has something bigger in store in and through Lazarus's life that will result in faith, in belief for the disciples and for the family and for thousands of other people, including us here today. Here we are 2,000 years later, other side of the planet, and we're reading the story because Jesus had a plan to build up people's faith and hope and confidence through this event. Okay, so Jesus has a plan. He had hinted at that plan back in verse 4. Look back at verse 4. Jesus said, This sickness is not to end in death. Death will not be the end of Lazarus' story because something greater than death will happen, but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Something greater is going to happen so that God can be glorified. What is the glory of God? Well, it's the revelation of God's greatness to us. Glory is when we get to see who God is. We get to see what he's like. And Jesus is saying, I've got a plan for Lazarus's life and death that's going to result in God revealing his power to you and his love to you and his compassion to you. So just hang on. Trust me, guys. I've got a plan that's going to work all this out. So Jesus has a plan, but at first it seems like a strange plan to hang out two extra days before going to visit Lazarus. And so people wonder, why does Jesus do that? Well, you get the answer in verse 17. Look at verse 17. So when Jesus came to Bethany, he found that he, that is Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. What's the significance of four days? Well, in the first century, Jews believed that for the first three days after death, you were only mostly dead. So they, they actually, they believed that your spirit hovered around your body and could re-enter it. So recovery from death was possible up to three days after death. But after three days, the body begins to decay and everyone can see it's game over. The spirit leaves and heads out after three days. So everyone knew a body that's been dead for more than three days is dead forever. It's game over. There's no hope for that person. And so Jesus waits for four days total. Why? So that when he brings Lazarus back to life, there will be no doubt. If he'd done it after two days or after three days, and the skeptic in the crowd might have said, well, how fortuitous is that? The spirit reentered the body. No, no one could say that. They knew. No, the body's decayed. It's, it's over. This guy died. Jesus did something incredible. So he's leaving no room for doubt so that their faith will grow, so that they will develop confidence that Jesus is who he says he is. So when we look at Lazarus' death, what we see is that Jesus had a plan for Lazarus that was bigger than death, just like he has a plan for your life that is bigger than death. Jesus has a plan for you that includes and transcends your own death. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Jesus knows when you're going to die to the day, to the hour, to the minute, to the second. He knows when you're going to die. He knows how you're going to die. And it's all part of his plan. 
a plan that works out for your good and the good of everyone around you. Paul understood that. He talks about that in Philippians chapter 1. My confident hope is that I will in no way be ashamed, but that with complete boldness, even now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether I live or die. Paul didn't care whether he lives or whether he dies because he knows God has a plan. God has a plan that's going to result in glory for God and joy for me whether I live or die. It's all part of the plan. It's going to work out okay. And that gave Paul great confidence just like it's meant to give you great confidence. Your death is not a mystery to God. It's not a surprise to God. It's not going to catch him off guard. It's all part of the plan for how he's going to bring greater good and greater glory through your life for you and for all those around you. So that's the first piece of good news that we get in John 11. Yeah, you're going to die, but it's all part of the plan, a plan that results in good for you and everyone around you. So that's the first thing that we learn. It's interesting to see there is one disciple who gets that, only one who understands what Jesus is saying. It's verse 16. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. This is Tom, doubting Thomas, the guy we associate with doubt. And at first you read that and it sounds like he's Eeyore. Oh, we're going to die. So let's just get this over with. He sounds sad and depressed. But no, that's not what's going on here. This is faith. What Thomas is saying is, hey guys, we're all going to die, so let's make sure we die with the guy who's got a plan. Let's make sure we stick to the man who actually has a plan for defeating death. That's good advice. Stick to the only guy in history who ever had a plan for bringing good out of death. Okay, so Jesus, he has a plan for your life that is bigger than death. That's the first piece of good news that we get here. Jesus now is going to head for Bethany. He's going to travel down to visit this family. And we're going to learn the second thing about Jesus and his relationship to death. We're going to learn that Jesus has compassion for all those who are facing death. So look with me. Let's pick up the story as it continues. Let's pick it up in verse 18. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now, this conversation between Jesus and Martha begins with a statement of her faith. She she has faith here. She believes, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would have lived because Martha believed that Jesus had supernatural power to overcome disease and sickness. She believed that because she'd seen it. We're at John 11. Jesus had already healed a lot of people who were crazy ill at this point in the story. Chapter 4 heals a a dying child. Chapter 5, a lame man. Chapter 9, a man born blind. So Martha has faith that Jesus can overcome sickness, but Jesus wants to elevate her faith. He wants Martha to understand that not only does he have power to overcome sickness, but he has power to overcome death itself. And so Jesus takes it up a notch. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, Martha misunderstands Jesus here. She assumes that what Jesus means is that at the end of this world, Lazarus will rise from the dead like all righteous people. All good Jews believe that. So she's expressing orthodox faith, but that's that's not what Jesus means. 
Jesus means something much, much more. So he leaves no doubt. Look at what he says next, something extraordinary. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and life. Jesus, you notice, he doesn't say, I can resurrect your brother. No, he says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. That is an identity statement. He is saying that he is the source of life. Now, all good Jews knew their Bible. Who created life? Genesis 1, God. This is divinity. This is a claim to the divine. Jesus is claiming to be the creator, the life giver. This is a bold claim. Awfully easy to say, awfully hard to prove. We're going to see Jesus prove that he's the resurrection and the life later in the account. But before we get there, I want to show you how this man, who is God, who is creator, who is infinite, who is immortal, who knows that he's about to call Lazarus out of the tomb, I want you to see how he interacts with Mary. Okay, so let's continue the story. Pick it up in verse 28. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. Verse 33, notice how Jesus responds to Mary's pain. He sees Mary weeping. He sees all these other people around her weeping. It says he was deeply moved in spirit. That's not the best translation. In Greek, that deeply moved, it means angry. He is indignant. He is furious. He is troubled. When it talks about trouble, that means you're stirred up. You're worked up. You can't sit still. So this is not a sad Jesus. This is a mad Jesus. He's furious at what? Well, not at Mary and Martha. They had expressed great faith, even in the midst of their grief. What's he angry at? Death. He's furious at death because he sees firsthand the pain that death causes to people whom he loves. And so Jesus is is angry at death, and that anger at death leads him, in verse 35, to weep. That's the shortest verse in your whole Bible, just two words. And yet it's one of the most profound. So who's Jesus? He is the eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent creator. He is God. He knows all things, including the fact that in like 30 seconds, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead and everyone's going to be happy. He knows that's coming. And yet when he sees Mary weep, he weeps. Why is he weeping? Well, not over Lazarus. He knows things are about to get good for Lazarus. He's weeping because people he loves are weeping. Bible in the book of Romans, chapter 13, it tells us, weep with those who weep. No one has ever done that better than Jesus. 
He saw a person weeping, and even though he, as God, knew that he was about to fix the problem they faced, still in compassion and empathy, he wept with them. I find that remarkable, that we have a God who has all power, who has all knowledge, and yet who chooses to weep with those who weep. What that means for us to make this personal What God wants you to know is that when you suffer, Jesus suffers with you. Not because he has to. He's God. He doesn't have to. He suffers with you because he chooses to. He weeps with you because he chooses to. Even though he sees what you can't see. He sees how he's about to bring great good out of all of your suffering. When you are in pain, he's with you in it. He's weeping with you. He's grieving with you. Because Jesus is the most compassionate man who's ever lived. I don't know if you ever thought about that with Jesus. We think of him as wisest and most perfect and most righteous and most powerful and all of those adjectives, but you realize he's also the most compassionate man who's ever lived. He's the one person who didn't have to weep. He never had to feel sadness, and yet he freely chose to weep with those who weep. Now, we Christians, we often misunderstand that. We get confused about that. We see a fellow believer suffering, Maybe they've lost someone that they love dearly. And we're tempted to go up and throw our arm around them and say, hey, buddy, it's going to be okay. God has a plan. Just trust him. No need to cry. It's as if we imagine God in heaven just impatient with us when we're weeping. Just like, okay, come on, weepy head. Get it together. Get with the plan. I'm going to work everything for good. Why are you crying? That's not your God. Yes, your God has a plan for working all things for good, and yet in your grief, he is there weeping with you. He has empathy and compassion for you, not because he must, but because he chooses to out of love. You have God who shares your grief, who weeps with you. That's the second thing that we learn about Jesus. He has compassion on those who must face death. He is with us when we are brokenhearted. Okay, fortunately, this story doesn't end with the weeping. So we're about to get to the really good part. Really good part. Third thing that we learn about Jesus and how he confronts death. Jesus has the power to overcome death. So let's read the part of the story that we all like best. Let's pick it up in verse 38. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, he came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. This is a remarkable event for a lot of reasons. It's a remarkable miracle story, uh, first of all, because this is the only one I know of where he actually uses the guy's name. Jesus heals people and doesn't usually call them by name. So what's up here? Why does he say Lazarus? Well, if Jesus is actually the resurrection and the life like he claimed, then if he would have just shouted, come out, every corpse within earshot would have gotten up. It would have been (laughs) 
like a walking dead scenario. And so Jesus had to get specific. He had to say that corpse, the Lazarus corpse, come out. And so in this moment, he proves to everyone that he is actually the resurrection and the life. He can just speak words and they give life. And so the result is that many believe, many of the Jews who are there, they believe. They say, wow, yes, you are who you claimed to be. You are the resurrection and the life because we have just seen you give life. This is Jesus's proof that he is the resurrection and the life. It is his proof that he can fulfill the really extreme promises he made back in verses 25 and 26. We just kind of skipped over them. Let's go back. So verse 25, after telling us, I am the resurrection and the life, he says, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Everyone who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now that seems a little odd because we know believers who die all the time. So what's he saying? Well, his point is death will have no hold on you if you believe in Jesus. Death can't win you. It can't own you. And so if you believe in Jesus, then even if you die, it will just be momentary, a flash. You will instantly be with Jesus. You will live with him forever. Death has no hold on you. That's what Paul talks about in Philippians 1. We were there earlier. Let's go back to Philippians 1 verse 22. Paul says, I don't know which I prefer. I feel torn between life and death because I have a desire to depart, that is to die and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul understands that death is just entrance into a better life. The moment a believer dies, that believer is instantly in the presence of Jesus. You're not asleep in the grave. You're not unconscious. Your flame doesn't flicker out. Now, you are conscious with Jesus. You can think, you can feel, you can speak, you can enjoy the presence of Jesus in paradise. That's where you will be the instant you die. Now, you're there in spirit. Your physical body is in the grave until the resurrection, which Jesus is going to bring at some point in the future. He's going to take your spirit, which is perfect and is with him, and rejoin it to a perfect version of your body as you have it now. And you will have body and spirit together for all eternity and the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus wants you to understand that there's no reason to fear death because Jesus is going to defeat death. He is going to bring incredible good out of your death. He's going to lead you into a better place. When believers die, we often say this cliche to each other, well, he's in a better place. But do we mean it? Because it actually is true. You realize that when a believer dies, he or she is right then in a better place. That's why, I don't know if you've ever thought about this story. Who's the one person in this story who's not real happy? Lazarus. (laughs) Why? So he was in heaven for four days, and now he's got to come back? I'm curious about the conversation between he and Jesus after it happened. Lazarus looking at Jesus, oh man, come on. That was great up there. And just, I'm sorry, bro. I had to do it. People got to believe. You'll get to die again in the future. <laughs> for Lazarus, what have, what have the rest of life been like? Just trying to get back there. Come on, it was so much better. Yes, you are going to die, but you don't need to be afraid of it. 
It's going to usher you in into a better existence. Death is like a measles shot. It hurts for a moment, but then it makes your life better forever. Death is like that dim hallway you walk through as you walk into the banquet hall. So much better in there. It just lasts for a second. And then everything's better forever. Jesus defeated death. And that gives us hope. There's no reason for us ever to be afraid of death again. Because when we die, we really will in that instant be in a better place. Fourth and final thing that that this account tells us about Jesus, the way that Jesus has overcome death is ironic. It's an ironic twist at the end of the story. The way Jesus overcame death for Lazarus and for all of us is by dying. He died to defeat death. Look with me. Let's continue the story starting in verse 46. 46. But some of them, some of the Jews who saw what, this, what, what had happened, went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. The irony is, according to verse 53, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he was actually signing his death warrant. The moment he called Lazarus out of the tomb, Jesus headed that way himself. Because from this point on, the religious leaders begin to plan their execution, their murder of Jesus, because they're jealous of him. Man, there's no denying that something crazy is happening. What do you do when a guy is raising people from the dead? They realize that they're not going to be able to contain this Jesus phenomenon any longer. And so people will follow Jesus instead of following them. And so out of jealousy, they begin to plan his death, his murder from this moment on. And that doesn't surprise Jesus. He knew it. He's God. He knew that when he told Lazarus to come out of the tomb, he was guaranteeing that he was going to take his place. Jesus knew he was going to die, but he knew that was the only way. He had to die to free us from death. That's what Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, unpacks in chapter 2. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, in our flesh and blood, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. When Jesus hung on the cross, Good Friday, about 2,000 years ago, it looked like death won, because there's the king of life dead. looked like death and the devil had won the day, but uh, their victory didn't last long, right? Because the hero rose from the dead. Three days later, Jesus walked out of the tomb, and that was the absolute final defeat of the devil and death forever. Jesus clinched victory out of the jaws of defeat. He turned what looked like their victory into his own victory. He killed death. He died to put an end to death so that you can live forever. That's the whole point of the cross and the grave. Jesus defeated your mortal enemies 
so that you can live with him for all eternity. That's really what we're celebrating today. It's not eggs, it's not a bunny. It's the fact that death lost. That 2,000 years ago, death got beat by the king of life who walked out of a tomb so that you can live forever. That's the good news of Easter. And so I want to end this morning by asking you two questions. The first is the same question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe it? Do you believe that this is true? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that he could raise Lazarus from the dead? Do you believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead? Do you believe? Do you believe that God offers you life forever as a free gift? You don't have to work for it. It's just yours for free if you believe. That's what Jesus says. He who believes will live forever, will live even if he dies. You've got to believe. But it is kind of hard to believe, isn't it? believe that a guy who claimed to be God and got crucified 2,000 years ago actually rose from the dead and walked out of the tomb. It's hard to believe because we don't see that. It's not like that happens every day. We have no precedent for it. Can't go prove it in a science lab. How do you get yourself to believe that Jesus actually defeated death? Well, the good news is God knew it'd be hard to believe, so he gave us lots of evidence an incredible mountain of historical evidence, some in the Bible, some outside the Bible, to prove to you that it is reasonable to believe Jesus actually rose from the dead. And for me, that has been incredibly important. I'm a doubter. You know that. I'm a skeptic by heart. I struggle with my faith. What has always brought me back to Christianity over the years is that I can't get past the evidence for the resurrection. I can't explain it away. In fact, I've come to believe the engineer, analytical, mathematician part of my brain has actually become convinced that it is harder to believe Jesus didn't rise from the dead than that he did rise from the dead based solely on historical evidence. There is so much evidence out there if you are only willing to read it. And so what, what we've done, I've, I wrote an article a couple years ago listing out the five primary lines of historical evidence that proved that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. Strongest evidence for our faith that there is. I would like to share that with you. So I'll post it on Facebook and Twitter this afternoon, or you can go to our website. If you go to grace-bible.org and, and hit resources at the top of the page and then frequently asked questions. There's a question that says, how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? Click it and you'll find the article. Five reasons why it's actually more reasonable to believe that he rose from the dead than that he didn't. Now, if you find it still hard to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that he offers you heaven and eternal life as a free gift, please talk to me. Please send me an email, come to my office, call me on the phone. Let's talk about it. Throw your doubts at me. They won't surprise me. I'd like to hear them and I'd like to talk to you because I believe that if you come to be convinced that Jesus actually did rise from the dead, everything's going to change for you. Everything. And for those of us who have believed, the second question is for us, who are you going to tell? You've heard some pretty good news this morning. Heard that death was beat 2,000 years ago. For the death doesn't have to win. For the death doesn't have to be that big a deal. That's incredibly good news. So who are you going to share it with? 
When the Allies won World War II, there were all of these spontaneous parties that broke out everywhere. Times Square, uh, Trafalgar Square in London, all, all over the world, the Allies gathered together spontaneously and celebrated. People were dancing in the streets. There were spontaneous parades. There were people shouting and kissing and, and having a wonderful time. They just couldn't stop shouting about it. And every newspaper on the planet carried in big, bold type, the end of the war, the victory of the Allies. People couldn't stop celebrating and sharing the good news because it was such good news. A world war that filled the whole war, world with war for four or five years had finally come to an end. The question for us is, why are we not that excited when we have better news? So what, what is our news? Well, it's not that a world war ended that lasted four years. That's pretty great. Your news is that the mortal enemy of mankind that has been slaying all of us for eons has been defeated once and for all so that all people can live with God in heaven for all eternity. That is far better news than the Nazis are beaten. And so God is calling us to shout it from the rooftops, to share it with everyone who will listen. And so my question for you this morning is, who are you going to tell? What family member, what friend, what co-worker, what neighbor, what classmate are you going to tell the good news to? Because you, you realize, everybody on earth already knows the bad news, right? Even if they try to ignore it, they know they're going to die. They know the bad news, but so few people know the good news. The death doesn't have to be that big a deal if you know Jesus. So will you be courageous enough to tell them the good news? Will you be loving enough to tell them that death doesn't have to be that big a deal if they'll simply trust in Jesus? I encourage you to use this day to do it. Easter, it's like the one day of the year that people don't think you're weird if you get religious on them. So use it. Call your parents. Call that friend. Post it on social media. Talk to your classmates, your roommates. Use this moment to tell people why we celebrate Easter. Yeah, because we think we have heard the best news that's ever been reported to the human race. That the mortal enemy of every human being has been defeated once and for all, and you never have to be afraid of him again. Let's pray for God's help to be bold, courageous, loving, and willing to tell people the good news about Jesus, Heavenly Father. First of all, we thank you that there is good news. If your son had not come, then all we would have is bad news. We would have no hope. We would have no life. We would die in our sins and death would win. So we praise you and we thank you that you have defeated our mortal enemy. We praise you that at the cost of your son's own life that you have defeated sin and death and Satan to set us free. We praise you and thank you that we can live without fear because of Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you love us so much that you were willing to suffer and die in our place. You're the one and only human being who did not have to die. You could have lived forever. You could have known nothing but peace and bliss and perfection, and yet you freely chose to suffer and die for us. We thank you for that, Jesus. We pray, Lord God, for any person here this morning who who doesn't yet know Jesus. Maybe they're here because they're still trying to earn their way to you. They think that coming to church makes them a better person, that it earns points with you. God, we pray that you would open their eyes. We pray that this might be the moment when they finally see that that's not how you work, that you are a God of infinite love, that you offer eternal life and heaven as a free gift, that they don't have to work for it, that they don't have to earn it, that Jesus has paid the full price 
so that they can live with you for all eternity and all they have to do is say yes. Please, God, help them to believe that your son Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead so that they could have eternal life as a gift. And for the rest of us, God, I pray, make us bold, make us courageous, make us compassionate enough to tell people the good news. God, we grieve for the billions of people in this planet who only know the bad news, who only know that they're gonna die and are doing everything they can, filling their bodies with alcohol and drugs and pornography and anything else they can to take away the the reality of death. We pray, God, that you might break through, that you might open their eyes to the good news. We pray that you would show them that your son loves them, that he died for them and rose from them so that they could live with you for eternity. We thank you that you are a God of grace and of love. In the name of your blessed son, we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Happy Easter.